Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wise, the app that makes managing your money in different currencies easy. With Wise, you can send and spend money internationally at the mid-market exchange rate. No guesswork and no hidden fees. Learn more about how Wise could work for you at wise.com. Today on State of the World, a possible deal to release Israeli hostages and Russian news media in exile. Thanks for listening to State of the World from NPR. We bring you the day's most vital international stories, up close where they're happening. It's Wednesday, November 22nd. I'm Greg Dixon. In a few minutes, we meet some independent Russian journalists operating outside their country. But first, there is the hope of a deal to release some hostages Hamas has been holding since they were taken from Israel during the attack on October 7th. Under the deal, 50 hostages out of the estimated 200 Hamas has would be released in exchange for 150 Palestinians held by Israel. There would also be a four-day pause in the fighting once the hostages are released, according to Israeli officials. This is the first major break since Israel's air and ground assault on Gaza following that attack by Hamas on October 7th. For more details, NPR's Brian Mann in Tel Aviv spoke to Robin Young, and he started by explaining what Hamas has agreed to in the deal. They've agreed to release 50 people. They say they're going to focus on children and mothers, also elderly hostages first. And obviously, Robin, what this means is that even if this deal does unfold exactly as planned with uh, people released over a period of time over the four days, uh, more than 150 Israeli hostages won't be released under this deal. Yeah. And and tell us more about the Palestinian prisoners um, that Israel will be exchanging for the hostages. We understand many are women and minors. Yeah, that's right. The list made public by Israel includes roughly 300 names. Nearly half are under the age of 18. A lot of them are teenagers who've been held by the Israelis for throwing stones or Molotov cocktails at police or or the military. Israel's government, Robin, this is interesting, is not freeing anyone convicted of murder. And this is a sharp contrast in this deal. Uh, Past hostage arrangements uh, have involved Israel freeing Palestinians accused of terrorism. Mm, I want to hear how, you know, uh, people where you are are reacting to all of this. But first, more of the deal. A four-day pause in fighting. Tell us more about the terms. So what we're hearing, and according to Israeli media reports, Israel's agreed to stop its ground and air offensive, and apparently that's going to include a halt to surveillance flights over Gaza. This military operation, of course, has been controversial around the world. Roughly 14,500 Palestinians have died during this assault so far, many of them civilian women and children. Uh, A lot of concern here also now among Israelis that this pause is going to allow Hamas fighters to regroup and strengthen their positions. Well, and tell us about the possibility of uh, this pause maybe being extended beyond the four days. Yeah, the Israeli government has signaled that if this hostage release goes as planned, there might be a second phase with more Palestinian prisoners, more Israeli hostages released. Uh, But it's important to say Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said bluntly this war isn't over. He says once this hostage process plays out, uh, the effort to eliminate Hamas is going to continue. Yeah, and give us more context uh, to, you know, the wider circle around this moment, this humanitarian crisis in Gaza. It's severe. Uh, Palestinians have been without food, water, fuel, uh, no safe place to shelter. Uh, This deal does include humanitarian aid to Palestinians. So tell us more about that. 
Well, we do expect to see a lot more food and fuel flowing now into Gaza. As you say, Robin, the situation for civilians has been horrific. The United Nations warning of hunger and disease, lack of safe drinking water, very little medicine or available health care. So there's going to be a scramble during these four days to truck in just as much relief as possible. Yeah. Well, so what a moment. We have two traumatized communities here, one in Israel and one in Gaza, Uh, families within Israel that have waited for weeks for news about their loved ones held hostage. How are they reacting to the deal? Yeah, I've been talking to families today, Robin, and there's real excitement and joy. But there's also a lot of tension because it's not clear who will be released. So these families are going to be waiting hour by hour for a call from the government with word and confirmation about their loved ones. Uh, After 47 days of waiting, this is going to be a hard few days. I should say families are also saying loudly that releasing these 50 hostages isn't enough. They're pushing the Netanyahu government to cut a bigger deal that brings everyone home. Uh, Hostage families say even if that means releasing a lot more Palestinian prisoners, including Palestinians detained for terrorism, they want that to happen. What about Palestinians? I mean, so many are displaced. There's no infrastructure there, so I'm not sure if you can gauge attitudes, and but how are they feeling that we know about the prisoner release? Well, a lot of the Palestinian prisoners who, you know, are going to be released are not from Gaza. They're from other parts of, of Israel or the West Bank. My NPR colleague, uh, Lauren Frere, was in the West Bank today, and she found Palestinians are also really hopeful, really joyous, preparing, you know, homecoming welcomes for family members they expect to be released. But it's important to say they're also somber and anxious and they're heartbroken. They tell NPR over all the death in Gaza, Palestinians want the Israeli bombing to stop permanently. Yeah. Well, any sense of that? Yeah. Uh, There might be a second phase of hostage and prisoner releases, uh, Robin, but right now we're not hearing talk of this pause turning into a longer, more stable ceasefire. As I mentioned, Israeli officials are saying clearly this war has just started. They want Hamas completely wiped out. Yeah. And Pierce Brian Mann in Tel Aviv. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll be back in a minute. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. With thousands of options under $20,000, plus customizable financing terms and down payments as low as $0 down, it's easy to find a car that fits your lifestyle. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today. Terms and conditions may apply. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Ever since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, there's been an intensified crackdown on the media in Russia. Two American journalists are in detention there, facing what supporters say are trumped-up charges. And journalists who criticize the war risk long prison sentences. But as NPR's Philip Reeves discovered, independent Russian journalism is far from dead. It has simply moved offshore. He introduces us to some Russian journalists operating in Latvia. 
I had two jobs in Moscow. I was a university teacher and I was a journalist. And both of my jobs were destroyed. Until recently, Kirill Martinov was editor-in-chief of Russia's oldest independent newspaper, Novaya Gazeta. Then, in February last year, Putin launched all-out war on Ukraine. Martinov's life was turned upside down. I was fired from universities because I, I discussed uh, this war with my students and uh, Nova Gazeta was shut down by Russian authorities officially more than one year ago. Martinov says this meant he faced a simple choice. I need to be silent or I, I will go to prison or the other option, I will do the same stuff but outside Russia. He chose the second option and came here. This is Riga. It's the capital of Latvia, a tiny Baltic nation that was once part of the Soviet Union but is now in NATO. Its government strongly supports Ukraine. Here, Martinov runs Novaya Gazeta Europe, an offshoot of his old organization. Here, he can publish those stories about Russia that would have landed him in jail back home. He's not alone. We've come to a place specially created as a haven for journalists seeking refuge in this city. This is the kitchen, and uh, here we have a list of birthdays. We provide... uh, coffee and tea and vitamins. Sabina Sile is Latvian. She's co-founder of Riga's Media Hub, a non-profit that runs this place. This is also the place where we hold community events. If we're all gathering with our families and children. So far, the hub's helped more than 500 media workers and their families. Here they can access free legal advice, learn Latvian. Everything. And Riga and relieve the stress with a workout. The working space is brightly decorated. There are comfy chairs and flowers and paintings. The reason for making it comfortable and homey is so that people could feel not just physically safe, but also emotionally. This is important, especially for new arrivals. A lot of them had to leave very quickly in a matter of hours to pack their bags and leave. But also it's a difficult decision to leave your maybe parents behind, not knowing when the next time uh, will be when you see them. Riga's a captivating city. It has parks and ancient churches, cocktail bars and fancy coffee shops. Forests and beaches are just a short drive away. Yet arriving Russians sometimes struggle to adapt. Some quit media organisations back home in protest over censorship, only to find a job shortage here. Paying for accommodation and organising residency papers is increasingly challenging, says Sile. Last winter was tough. People were really, really struggling. There were suicide attempts, and um, so we were happy that none of it was successful and that we were able to support each other and get through it together. Denise Kemalyagin is sitting at a nearby desk. He's chief editor of Pskovskaya Gubernia, a small independent newspaper in Pskov in western Russia. The Kremlin insists journalists call its war on Ukraine a special military operation. I got out of there so that I could call a war a war, says Kamelyagin. Nine days after the war started, police commandos seized all the equipment from his newspaper headquarters, forcing it to close. A few days later, they raided his home. Kamelyagin says he hurriedly fled Russia, carrying only a backpack. His paper's been in trouble before. 
In 2015, it angered the authorities by revealing Russian paratroopers had been killed in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine, even though the Kremlin denied any Russian military was there. Kamelyagin thinks this time his paper was targeted to stop it reporting Russian fatalities since the all-out invasion of Ukraine. This hasn't worked. His news portal is covering the story from here, using a secret network of anonymous journalists at home. He says it's keeping a running total of dead soldiers from his area. For Russian journalists here in Latvia, life is much safer. They play cat and mouse with Russian authorities who block their outlets, forcing them to switch platforms. They also still face threats from Moscow. Russia's lower house of parliament, the Duma, talks of stripping disloyal Russians of property and passports. These people who hope the Nazi regime in Ukraine will be victorious are not welcome here, says Speaker Vyacheslav Volodin at a recent hearing. Those who return to Russia should be sent to the Gulag, he says. Back across the border in Latvia, the new arrivals have had a mixed reception. The country's sizable population of ethnic Russians includes Putin supporters. Other Latvians remember the repressive Soviet years and tend to view Russians with suspicion. Yet Kirill Matinov of Novaya Gazeta Europe says overall there's been a warm welcome from Latvian authorities. Because they were under Soviet occupation and they had thousands of people who lived in exile for decades. And so they understand quite clear what it, what does it means when you know when you have a heavy dictatorship in your country and you're forced to move abroad. Not every journalist who's here to avoid prison or worse back home is Russian. The level of absurdity there is so high that it's often difficult for people to believe. Anastasia Zakarevich is from Belarus, Moscow's closest European ally. She was detained while covering opposition protests in 2020 and spent days in custody. She's now a refugee in Latvia. A few months ago, her father, back home, died suddenly. I had to look at the funerals of my dad on the screen of my smartphone. And this is the worst experience in the life. Riga's media exiles hope one day soon all this will end. I believe that we will face years or maybe decades of this divided Europe and rise of hate and distrust. Yet it's hard to be optimistic, says Kirill Martinov. Martinov is not sure he will ever be able to go home. Philip Reeves, NPR News, Riga, Latvia. That's the State of the World from NPR. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you again soon. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. 
Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.